You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. When I first started practicing yoga, I had this idea that the practice could get rid of all of my imperfections, at least over a long period of time. But it turns out that it taught me how to make peace with them instead. Y'all, we are complex, multi-dimensional beings, and we're all works in progress. I'm not even sure I'd still want to be the person that I thought I could become 20 years ago. And if we think of getting rid of imperfections as the goal, we're bound to get frustrated and eventually give up. If we do want to stick with yoga as a path, I believe that we need to give ourselves space to see what actually unfolds over this long period of practice and inquiry. And this refers back to the framework of Abhyasa and Vairagya that is so essential to the philosophy of yoga. Abhyasa refers to a consistency of practice over a long period of time, and vairagya of understanding that you cannot control the results of that practice. You could say it's a commitment to keeping your mind open and looking to see things as they really are. So I also think about it as a commitment to staying in beginner's mind as much as possible, which ironically, I think gets a little bit easier, the less of a beginner you are, because it's so compelling in the beginning to want to know, to want to understand, to want clear answers. On today's episode, my guest Taylor Ray opens up about her own journey through paralyzing perfectionism. Taylor found yoga when she was just 15 years old and battling both addiction and depression. She says that teaching was so difficult for her when she first started that she ended up quitting and didn't try again for three years. However, over time, she found that the yogic path has been her greatest tool for recovery and most especially for learning how to love herself. Let's jump into the conversation and I'll let her tell the story in her own words, including her advice for understanding and befriending the addict inside that we each have inside of us. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here and so excited to dive into this conversation about fear and action and how yoga can help intertwine with all of that. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. So let's start with a little bit of your story of how you got here, how you found yoga, became a teacher, and what was that like for you? Okay, so this is a long story. I'm going to shorten it as best as I can. (laughs) So I found yoga, I'm so grateful, at a really young age at 15 years old. So that's 16 years ago. And I found it while I was struggling with a drug addiction, with depression, with anxiety, and just overall living a really toxic life. And it was, I found yoga at 15. I went to my first yoga class because I knew it was something that could be really good for me. So I went into my first class and I remember 
looking around the room and feeling like, wow, these people are so happy and glowing and like, I want what they have. So I practiced and it was the first time after that class that I actually felt really good without getting high. Honestly, I'll just say like it is without self-medicating. So I knew something was here and it took many, many years of um, struggling with my toxic lifestyle with drugs, alcohol, negative relationships, and also practicing yoga, practicing mindfulness. I'd go through different binges of both for years. And that led me to my first period of sobriety. And today I actually celebrate nine years almost nine years sober in one week, actually. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. you. So that was the second time that that was the final time that I did get sober. But the first time I, since yoga was so helpful for me, I was 10 months sober and I went through my first 200 hour YTT at 19 or 20 years old, I believe. So At the time, I also had a yoga teaching job already set up for when I finished that training. And I was terrified, so scared. And I went to New York for my 200 hour training. I immersed myself for a month. It was awesome and it was terrifying. And the last day of YTT, the whole group from training went out to celebrate. So as the group went out to celebrate, By the time the server got to me and everyone was placing their orders, I had this conversation in my head. Wow, you're doing so good. Alcohol wasn't really a problem. You can celebrate with everyone, it's fine. And I relapsed on the last day of teacher training. And then the feeling of putting something in my body, I remembered, oh, I like this feeling. I have so much fear around going home in two weeks and teaching yoga, so much anxiety of, around being seen that when I drank, it took it away. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, I like this, this is easy. So I went, I spiraled quickly into about a four month relapse. And I came home and I started teaching yoga for about a month and it was the worst experience of my life because I had so much guilt and shame. And I was in my relapse and no one knew. And I quit after about a month because I couldn't take it anymore. And that led me to my um, long journey of really getting sober for the last and final time. So that's like the backstory and we're gonna dive in more because it's all so intertwined together. So interesting because it really, um, it's like an example of how we put yoga teachers on a, a pedestal. And then by putting our teachers on a pedestal, then if we decide to teach, then we think, oh, I need to be on that pedestal too. And therefore yoga teachers need to be pristine and perfect. And there's kind of these threads of purity and perfectionism woven into this identity where there's nothing magic that happens the day you graduate from teacher training, right? You're still, you, you have the same baggage as you walked in with. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's so much more awareness around this now, and there's a lot more yoga teachers showing up imperfect and talking about their imperfections, but this was, we're talking about 16 years ago, right? Yeah. And that's also, um, I think right around the same time that I graduated from teacher training. So I remember the yoga world 
And because there wasn't this accessibility with social media that we have now, and I know that people criticize social media as far as like everybody puts their best foot forward, whatever, that's true to some point, but also a lot of people are being real on social media too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That wasn't available 16 years ago. You Mm -hmm. went to these workshops and you saw these teachers up on stage basically and that was all you saw. Yeah, I love that you're you're speaking to that because I used to definitely put my teachers on pedestals and I thought that there was nothing wrong with them. They were perfect. I felt like I would almost watch them float into the room like this magical being <laughs> and nothing was wrong until I learned over the years that we're all just human. But I I do actually like social media for that fact that you just said because there's opportunity to be real, to be vulnerable, and that is relatable. And people get to see, wow, if she went through that and now she's doing this, I can do it too. And we give people hope by sharing our stories from an authentic, kind, you know, kind place, of course. <laughs> but we also give people hope by not being perfect on social media. Yeah. And by, by showing up messy and, and doing it anyway and sharing the message that is, has been important to us in a way that, yeah, it's not as eloquent as it could have been, (laughs) but we got it out there and we were able to gauge the response and connect with people about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my mottos is start messy, imperfect action. If you're waiting till it's perfect, you're going to wait forever. So tell me a little bit more about the feelings that you were experiencing when you first started teaching? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the first time I started teaching in that month, of course, there was a lot of guilt and shame around teaching and um, in a relapse and feeling like a fraud. And it also led me once I quit, I, I created a belief in my head that I failed. I cannot be a yoga teacher. I'm not meant to do this. I'll never do this. So I need to quit. And it took that and I completely shut any idea around becoming a yoga teacher out for three years. I got sober. I went to treatment. I started working like retail jobs and I was a barista and I wasn't happy. I was happy being sober, but I wasn't happy with my work. And in the back of my head, there was always this, this tap on the shoulder telling me like, this is your dream. You want to share this practice. Like this is your greatest fear also. And I started to see just how it got louder and louder basically over the years. So I had an opportunity. Someone knew that I was, um, I went through a teacher training years ago and they invited me to teach at their, their new gym. And at the time I was like, no, 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 like I can't do this. I am not, I'm not capable, but they really, they believed in me and that helped me believe in myself. So at that time, it gave me permission to revisit this idea, this dream. And I ended up going through a second 200 hour teacher training because it was years. I wanted to refresh and I basically made the decision this is my dream. I'm fucking terrified, excuse my language, (laughs) but I'm going to do whatever it takes to work through this fear and to actually do what I want to do in my life. 
Because if I don't, I'm going to not enjoy life. And I have a long life ahead of me. (laughs) And that's going to (laughs) suck. So what was it like on the other side? Like after that first class where you were like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Yeah, it was terrifying. It was amazing. It was liberating. I, I showed myself, okay, the fear is going to be here, but I'm going to do it anyways. And basically I learned that the fear doesn't go away ever. It, it really doesn't leave me. I just have to make space and allow it to be there. And after that very first class, I just remember feeling like so free because I didn't let fear hold me back. I didn't let my limiting beliefs hold me back. So I felt liberated. I feel like there's a type of high that's actually very similar to using drugs and exhilaration when you do something that is really scary and then you're at the end of it and you did it. A hundred percent. And I love that you're putting it that way because once I started teaching that feeling and the feeling really comes down to following my purpose and doing what I want to do, no matter what the fear is around it. That's what I was searching for when I used to use drugs, but I never got it from drugs. That's because of dopamine, right? Yeah. Because dopamine is the hormone that tells us that there's pleasure around the next corner. Yeah. But it doesn't actually ever provide it. No. So you're always chasing it. Do you know much about the physiology of addiction? I think I understand more than anything, just the human behavior around it, the energetics around it. I have seen so many friends um, I used to use with and then going to treatment. And I used to find all of my really good friends like relapsed. Like I was like the person to have found them that first relapse, like walk in and see something in, in treatment in sober living. So I think more than anything, I just got to really understand human behavior and what drove people to it and witnessing that. So tell me about what you see as some parallel behaviors, because there's a lot of stigma around drug use, but we self-soothe in so, with so many different types of behavior. Tell me what you've seen in yourself and in your friends. What do we replace drugs with when we're not using drugs? And what are we, those of us who maybe don't use drugs, what do we use in the same way? And we might be looking at people who use drugs in in this judgmental way, but we're actually doing the exact same (laughs) thing to ourselves in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everyone has something. So I lead, um, to this day, I lead 200 hour yoga teacher training programs and trauma-informed teacher trainings, restorative yoga. So I get, um, I'm so grateful that I get to have so much time with the same group of people, especially in the 200 hour where we get to have these conversations. And I really just look at them as distractions. We can look at them as addictions. And to me, those are pretty similar because say you had a really long day and you might not have you don't run to drugs or alcohol, but you come home, you had a stressful day, you watch Netflix to zone out as a distraction to not feel your feelings, to not have to face what's coming up for you and to not basically look at it. So they're all the same. They're all the same. It's just what you found first that helps you to not actually feel and look at yourself. So that shows up as sex, 
people, codependency, food, shopping, just constant like o- overworking, which is one of mine now. And I have to be really careful because I can easily find myself back into distracting myself with work. So it just shows up in so many different ways. And every single person has one at least. Yeah, I can definitely relate to the overwork one as well. And I think it's so interesting because we're trying to avoid feeling. We're trying to avoid looking at things that are painful, which is basically we're trying to avoid feeling. And the truth is, the truth of our experience, at least what you and I are talking about, is that the joy, the bliss, the peace that we seek is actually on the, uh, is actually through the experience of these challenging, uncomfortable feelings that we're trying to avoid. Yes. And that's, yeah. So when I, when I quit teaching, that was me avoiding my fear. I was paralyzed and I thought to myself, I must not be uh, meant to do this because of what's coming up for me, all the anxiety and fear. And now I realize, wow, I, I, I tried to bypass it. I tried to shove it down and shove it away. I tried to ignore it. And what did that cause? Well, the impact was horrible. It caused me to not live in my truth, follow my purpose, and really show up as the person I want to be. So when we look at fear, we have to look at, well, what's the impact? What's the cost of you not stepping into? Because you can't bypass it, like you said. You literally have to move through it to grow. And then to feel like you're in alignment and to feel joy and happiness. Yeah. And the thing that's really, really compelling and important is that even if you do all the things to avoid feeling pain, right? Emotional pain. That's really what we're talking about. Whether we describe it as anger, fear, sadness, devastation, even if we do every single thing to avoid it, we're still going to feel it because it's part of the human condition. It's part of the human experience to feel sorrow and, and, and literal pain. And so every strategy that we have to avoid it is ultimately futile anyway. Yeah. (laughs) So we harm ourselves and we still don't get what we want. Yeah. It's crazy, but it's true. It's, and we have to, once you realize what actually can come from it, it's like building a muscle, right? At first, you don't understand like what's on the other side. And once you start to do those things, then you realize, oh, this is just part of it. Like I actually have to experience this. And the more you do it, sure, it gets easier, but it's still going to show up. Yeah. It's like, we want to make it happen just a little faster. We want to have that re- that moment of recognition. Oh, there's that experience again. I know you, I know how, I don't want to deal with you, but I know how. Yeah. <laughs> and we hope to make that, that switch a little bit faster. Yeah. So tell me what your take on what yoga has to say, because yoga is very interested in human, the human experience of suffering and how to work with it. So what's your perspective on how we use yoga to do this. Yeah, I think that just like yoga philosophy teaches us is you are not your thoughts. We have thoughts, but they don't 
actually mean anything, <laughs> but we attach to our thoughts. Our ego attaches to thoughts. And then we believe these thoughts like they are truth. So when we can learn to look at, wow, I'm having this thought or this thought pattern or this belief that I've carried my whole life, or I recently picked up, or I recently discovered, then we can learn and realize, right? Wow, this is just a thought and it doesn't actually mean anything, but I, I have created it to be my identity. And so how to practice non-attachment and to be able to look at it and say, okay, I have the power to actually shift, change, pivot in any moment, any second, any day. So what are the main practices that you personally use to recognize these thought patterns? Because the tendency is to just believe them and act from them. This is normal human behavior. This is what we are, we're seeing happen in you know, the, the political arena right now where there's all of these people having thoughts and believing their thoughts and then taking sometimes very harmful action based on these thoughts without ever stopping to go, oh, I'm having a thought. I wonder if it's a helpful thought. I wonder if it's a thought that I want to be having, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, they just believe it. So what, yeah. what practices do you use? I use yoga nidra as one of my main practices and meditation, different meditation practices. So really finding stillness movement is especially important to me. All, all types of movement, whether it's a yoga practice, it's free form dance, it's being really slow and gentle fitness, working out. And that's how I first kind of like stir the energy up, get it up and moving, get it out. And then I find stillness, right? Which is like yoga teaches us asana and then meditation. But for me, it's, it's actually meditating or doing a yoga nidra practice or hypnotherapy to a point, to the point where I actually move through all the, the um, busy thoughts, which can take 30, 45 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes. And I have to move beyond that to then drop into that space of like true awareness where I like completely can recognize, okay, I just w witnessed all of these thoughts for however long, 30 to 60 minutes. Now I'm the most centered I can feel right now to be able to reframe, rewire uh, my subconscious mind and my beliefs. What are your favorite meditation techniques? I used to use a lot of guided. That's what I like to teach. And <laughs> I used to, okay, so this is kind of funny, but I, I have a yoga nidra bundle that I recorded and I have a pack of four and I used to sell them for people, recordings, audios. And I like to listen to my own self actually. So I use that quite a lot because I really like the practice and there's something about actually hearing my own voice guiding me that takes me into a deeper space. Oh, that's super powerful. Yeah. And since this is a podcast specifically for yoga teachers, there's a little idea for you. Yeah. If you're trying to change the way you think, record your own guided meditations and yoga nidras and listen to yourself. And I'm actually creating one right now that is specific. It's I'll be the one recording it, writing it, that is specific for my vision of my life and what I'm creating and manifesting and the kind of energy I want to be in and embody. So I'm going to, I'm like writing that out right now to record and then to listen to it daily. 
So what is your advice for yoga teachers who have never recorded their own guided meditations? Yeah. So it'll feel really weird at first. It'll feel really awkward. And I think that, so in my 200 hour YTT, one of their homework practices is to record themselves teaching something simple like sun A, sun B, teaching it while they're doing it. And then follow it back as, as your own student. And that's always a really hard practice because it's hard to hear yourself. It's hard to see yourself. We could treat, we critique ourselves really easily. So my advice would be, I think first, just listen to other guided meditations to get an idea of the flow of it, get some inspiration, and then maybe even use something similar to someone else's. And then just adjust it with your own words, the kind of language that you use that resonates with you. And just practice it back. Grab your iPhone, use voice memo, super easy, and just read it off of the script and then listen back. And when you do it, when you listen back, actually follow it like a meditation. This is how I used to create mine. And I would notice, oh, I need a longer pause here. I went too fast. I need to slow down or this, this didn't feel right in my body. It didn't make sense. And then I would tweak it, re-record, listen back. Oh, this felt really good. I was able to go deeper. So you're kind of revising it a few times and then you find the one that like you love and there you go. That's awesome because that'll help them to improve their teaching at the same time. A hundred percent, your words, your language, your pace. Really cool. I love that. Yeah. So what advice do you have for yoga teachers who are either experiencing a lot of fear right now, because there is a lot of fear and anxiety around making it and being sustainable as a yoga teacher with the world changing. And it's hard to, we can't predict what's going to happen next. It's like every time we think, okay, things are just, they're going to get back to normal soon. Then something else happens. So what is, what is your advice for how to work with that type of experience and energy? Mm -hmm. Well, there's two, I feel like there's kind of two different answers to that because we've got just the fear around becoming a yoga teacher and teaching. And then the fear around teaching in the world right now, which is like very uncertain with COVID and everything. And it doesn't look the same teaching in studios and taking it online. Right. So First, I think it's just really acknowledging that there is fear and being able to actually sit down and recognize, well, what is it that I'm afraid of, first of all? Because if we don't know, then you can't do your work. You can't work through it. You have to actually acknowledge it first. So what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of it? So that might look like there's always something deeper underneath the fear. If I'm afraid of teaching yoga, well, why? Well, I'm afraid of people not liking me as a teacher, or I'm afraid of messing up, or I'm afraid of not making enough money, right? So there's always something under it. So getting clear on that and um, and then just acknowledging it and being able to say, okay, I see that these are here and I'm going to still show up and do this thing. So that's where we kind of have to shift into when you're a new yoga teacher, you don't see yourself as a new, as a yoga teacher yet. So you have to actually 
shift your identity in a way and see yourself in this role, which is part, part of why I think people are held back is because they don't believe that that's them. So being able to, I love the fake it till you make it. Honestly, that's how I got through my first year, two years. I didn't feel like a yoga teacher, but I had, I showed up like one. I pretended. And then that itself helped me shift my identity into one day. I mean, not just all of a sudden one morning, but like over time, slowly over this kind of like few month period, I felt it and I started to show up truly as that. I'm with you. I am a huge fan of the power of taking action, that there is nothing to me more healing and motivating and inspiring than to do just one thing at a time. And specifically because otherwise we're stuck. Mm -hmm. If we're just sitting here examining our thoughts, that's great. The meditation is fantastic. You want to build this awareness. You want to build this sense of separation, especially if you are driven into inaction by your fears, then you want to build a relationship with it. But eventually you got to do something too, right? It's not just meditation. It's not just sitting there and you, and you sit with it and you experience it and you experience it and you experience it. It's like, okay, here you are. This is my lived experience. This is an okay lived experience to have. And now what is my next step? How can I maybe do something for someone else or take one step in a direction of my dream or do something to move just like what you were talking about, which you like to do before your meditation movement and just getting into your body and actually living in your body, I think helps to reduce some of the over importance we place on our thoughts. There's like an analgesic effect. Like the thoughts are still there, but they're not as painful. They're not as powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one other thing I think is really important that I didn't get at first as a new teacher. So when you graduate your first 200 hour YTT, all in all, it's still not, it's still not enough. Right. But as a new teacher, you graduate thinking I need to know it all and I should be able to be like my teacher. So a lot of teachers compare and then they feel, well, since I'm not like them, then maybe I'm not meant to do this. And then a lot of them give up or never start teaching, right? And that's something that breaks my heart because I know that feeling and I know how bad it feels. So what I learned was, oh, wait, you just have to fill in the gaps. You just have to fill in and take, like really spend time learning in areas that you might not feel strong enough in. Maybe you get mentorship. Maybe you just take extra time truly like um, using these practices and skills and honing them. And of course, you just have to get out and teach. <laughs> but being okay, filling in the gaps, hiring help when you need it, um, doing whatever it takes, really. You know, what's so interesting, you're talking about the comparison trap. And one thing that I wish I could have done, and I I don't know if it's possible or not, but to just be okay being a beginner, I feel like that's the most advanced thing out there 
And I would like to practice that in some other areas of my life since I'm not a beginner yoga teacher anymore, but let's say like go to a dance class and just be like, I'm a beginner or try painting. And instead of comparing my paintings to the teacher or to, you know, famous artists be like, yeah, I'm a beginner. I'm going to enjoy being a beginner. I'm just going to do my rudimentary thing and let that be enough. Yeah. I feel like that right now in my life, building my business online. That's new. I'm a total beginner there. It is a lot, but I get, it's easy that I compare myself. And then when I look, oh, well, they've been doing this for three years, for five years. And I'm what, six months in I'm beginning. And that's where social media can become a little bit harmful because we do need to put ourselves out there as an authority when we're on social media. And it's a delicate balance between being authentic and real and raw, but also you don't wanna be self-indulgent and you want to make sure that you do share the way that you can help people. That's a tough one. I don't think that there's any glib, easy answers to it, but I think it's helpful just to have that reminder. Everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't compare your year one to someone's year 10. And you can't even compare your year one with somebody else's year one, truthfully, because you don't know, they may have an MBA, Mm -hmm. right? Or they may have access to a network that you don't have access to. A hundred percent. I love that. That's awesome. So you really have to, you know, one of the things that I've been working on is uh, Pratyahara around social media and unfollowing people that are, if I, if I'm looking at them primarily as a competitor, I don't need to follow them. It's not helpful. I've got a lot to say. I don't need to know what my competitors are saying and competitor is maybe the wrong word, but niche mate or somebody who serves the same audience as me. There's a lot of advice out there to follow those people mm-hmm. and there may be a place for it, but I've learned it's not helpful I need to really focus on my own message and then interacting with the people that I'm wanting to serve and wanting to work with. So Pratyahara for me is unfollowing people. The other thing for me is notifications, just turning off notifications. Yeah. That's been huge. Yeah. That's a good boundary. For creating um, an ability to be where I am. Yeah. I love that. So I, I started deleting Instagram and Facebook off of my phone in the evenings and certain weekends because, and I hated this, that this was happening, that I would pick my phone up, unconsciously open up one of the apps. And then two minutes later notice, wow, I didn't even know I was getting on here. What am I doing? This is so unconscious. I do not like this at all. This is not okay. And once I started realizing that, I was like, I need to delete them. I actually couldn't. And I tried to just not open them. And then I would open them and notice. So I was like, they need to be off. So then I delete them. And now when I pick my phone up and I unconsciously go there, I can't open it. And then I realize, wow, I'm still trying to open them. (laughs) And that's the dopamine again, because the dopamine release in your brain is telling you that there's some kind of reward. There's some client that's trying to book you or some amazing post from your mentor that you're going to miss out on. 
So it's really fascinating. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I delete those apps a lot. And I also just, I struggle with it. I, I struggle with a right relationship with social media. A hundred percent. This has come a really lovely full circle. I'm curious if you have any final pieces of advice or anything you really want to emphasize. Yeah, I think that, you know, since we're talking about fear and just building confidence as a new teacher, it's it's really also just like remembering too that you're not going to be the teacher for everyone even. So as long as you stay true to yourself, to your miss, your your message, your voice, your your mission, your people will find you and you'll find them and you you won't be the teacher for everyone and that's okay, right? And to just make space for your fear, befriend your fear, know it's going to be there and step into it, step right into it because there's no other way. And it feels actually really great on the other side. It does. It's so incredible. It really is. Well, this was really wonderful. So much valuable information and advice, Taylor, if I know you have your own podcast. If any listeners want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah. So I've got the yoga teacher circle podcast. It's also for yoga teachers. I've had Mado on there before, so you can check out her episode too. And I'm on Instagram at Taylor underscore Ray yoga and website is taylorrayyoga.com. And Ray is W-R-A-Y, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Taylor. This was a really amazing conversation. Thank you so much for having me on today. I loved it. One thing I really loved from that conversation is the advice to record and listen to your own voice for guided meditations and yoga nidra. What a powerful tool for all of us recovering perfectionists. And if you're sitting here or walking or driving, you're thinking, no way could I do that. I just hate the sound of my own voice. I want you to know that I get it. I can still remember really clearly what it was like to absolutely cringe at the sight of myself or the sound of myself. And if I'm honest, I have to admit that part of me thought that getting comfortable on camera or even getting comfortable with the sound of my own voice would be kind of narcissistic. But the reality for me has been the opposite. The more I learn to love and accept myself, I realize I'm more available to love other people. This might sound a little bit weird, but I think we steal energy from ourselves through self-loathing. So self-love, on the other hand, is more like a self-perpetuating force that grows how much love we have to share. Listen up. If you're thinking, sure, that might work for other people, but not for me, then I'm definitely talking to you because it's those of us who struggle the most, who have the most to gain from this kind of growth. If you're up for it, take on some kind of challenge. I think 30 days is a good amount of time. Record one video or one meditation per day for 30 days. You don't ever have to share them with anyone, but do watch and or listen to them because you'll learn so much. At the end of 30 days, I would be really curious to hear if you've changed the way you see or hear yourself at all. I did this with live video in the spring of last year, and something did shift for me in my willingness to be on camera and how much energy it takes. I'm still definitely not the best at it, 
but I don't put as much drama into resisting it anymore. I actually consider facing my fears to be a form of self-care. Now, if you're already stretched to the edge, it may not be the right form of self-care in a specific moment, but if you've been avoiding this for far too long and you know it, I hope that this conversation pushes you to give it a shot, to run this experiment and try it out. At the very least, I think you will definitely learn something about yourself. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.